Morning. We're going to pray again. I'm going to pray for ourselves as we hear God's word. I want to pray as well because um, up at Brooks this week they'll be having their mission. So we'll pray as God's word goes out there too that he will reap a harvest. Well, thank you that when you speak, worlds are made. Thank you that lives are transformed. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak to us this morning. We pray as your gospel is preached up at Oxford Brooks this next week, we pray that you would transform lives there. We pray for blind eyes to be opened and hard hearts to be softened. For dead people to become alive in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, do you want to make some money? If you want to make some money, maybe you ought to visit the Motif Investing Company website and they will invest your money to make you some more. There you can find a Seven Deadly Sins financial investment plan. Let me read you the philosophy behind this plan. It says, even in a weak economy, bad habits remain. Even in tough times, consumers continue to partake in things that may not be considered particularly virtuous. From cigarettes to sex, from burgers to Botox, consumer indulgences require products and services from a wide range of publicly traded companies. Some luxuries see reduced demand during tough times, but smokers keep smoking, drinkers keep drinking, and the lustful keep lusting. Bad habits are hard to break, and when times are rough, who wants to even try? Nobody can predict the markets. But consumers are only human, and economic conditions may not be able to defeat their, may not be able to defeat their appetites for sinful stuff. See what they're saying? Their philosophy is, regardless of market conditions, regardless of the economy, sin, as they're defining it here, is inevitable. People are people. They're going to keep doing what people keep doing. And so we may as well cash in and make money on it. They will invest your money and you will get a good return. The numbers do stack up. What do you think? Should we go for it? It's a quirky idea. It's it's quite clever. It understands human nature. It understands the, the inevitability of sin. It's kind of funny. But of course it's not. Because as we've seen week on week on week, sin is never funny, because sin is what broke the world. As the first man and woman walk out on God and say, we'll do it our way, thank you, we, we don't want you involved, thank you. And as we've followed ever since, so sin has mushroomed. Let me read to you from Genesis 2, 15 to 17, just a couple of verses from the start of the Bible. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. God says, disobey me, show me that you don't want to live under my kind rule, and death will come. And so they do. And it does. And the kind of companionship between man and God that we read of in Genesis, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, is gone. The the relationship that we were made for goes. And in comes separation and exclusion and curse 
and pain. And now on the one hand, we have a holy God who is so good. And on the other hand, we have people like us who are not. People who are full of sin and rebellion and pride and self. And so arises this conundrum that sits at the heart of the Bible story. God God can't just let them off, but, but he loves them. And so what do you do? How, how are they going to meet again? It's a question that sits at the very foundation of the Bible. In a sense, it's what the Bible is all about. If you're someone new to Christian things, just looking in on stuff perhaps, please go away this morning remembering that. That is what the Bible is about. That is the conundrum, is putting the holy, just, good God and sinful people like us back together again. And what is the answer? The answer is sacrifices. This is really important. Just as God promised, sin does result in death. But it's not in the death of the sinner in the death of an animal instead. It's a clear theme that runs right the way through the Bible. We'll look at one sacrifice in particular in a moment. But right through the Bible, as the leaders place their hands on the livestock, as the high priest places his hands on the goats or the bulls, as as a man turns up at the temple with a lamb in his hands, there is no doubt why the animals are dying. There is no doubt who the animals are dying for. The animal dies so the people don't die. The answer is sacrifices. And these sacrifices, they're not a way of twisting God's arm to try and get him to relate to us. If we could just do enough to have him back. If we could just try and make him love us again. No, no, they're they're his. They're his initiative. It's his plan. They're his idea. His gracious and kind means for reconciliation again. Sacrifices are the answer. We're going to get a flavour of that as we go to Leviticus. So come with me to Leviticus. It's near the start of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're in Leviticus 16. And just to kind of give you the the context very broadly. We are after God has rescued his people from Egypt. We are before they reach the promised land. Why Leviticus? I think Leviticus 16 particularly sits behind much of Romans 3 that was read for us. In the very heart of Leviticus sits chapter 16. At the very heart of the old covenant people of God, you get the Day of Atonement. The one day in the year when the high priest can make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. In a sense, he can make it possible again for the the holy God and people like us to be friends. God who is so good and people like us who are proud and all about self. So chapter 16, and I'll just have a look at verse 30 and then verse 34. There, the summary, that's the end game. Verse 30, on this day... Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. Or verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. 
atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. That's where it's all going, but 16 itself is incredibly complicated. There is so much blood. They can't just approach God as they want to. He's given them the instructions. We, we never, we never approach God on our terms. Do it on the way that we want to do it, with our ways and our ideas. There is loads of steps to go through. The, firstly, the priest, the high priest, who represents the people to, to do the sacrifice, he's not pure and holy. If you flip back to 11 to 15 of Leviticus, you, you will see some of that. The priest needs to wash himself as prescribed by the law. He needs to wear the correct clothes for this day. It's not kind of brightly, a, a brightly adorned, a striking attire that he normally wears. He's got to dress a simple tunic and a sash. He looks like a servant, stripped of all honour. He needs to offer sacrifices for himself and for his household, a a bull is sacrificed. Not just the priest, but the place. For this nomadic community on their way to the promised land, in the very middle of the camp, at the very heart of the people, is this tabernacle, the tent of meeting. There's a holy of holies right in the middle of that. The Ark of the Covenant in there. You've got the holy place before you go in there. So in the centre of the sinful people lies the tabernacle in the midst of their uncleanness. And so the priest, after cleansing himself, putting on the right clothes, sacrificing for himself and his family, he then makes sacrifices for the place. And the articles he'll be using for the Day of Atonement. He sprinkles blood from goats and bulls over the atonement cover. And when he's done, priest and then place, he can get on with people. You've got two ghosts. One is goats. One is the sin offering. Which means a sacrifice for unintentional sins. The leaders represent their people. They lay their hands on the goat. They slit its throat and kill it. The second one is to be the scapegoat. And they, they lay hands again and outside it runs, outside the camp, into the unclean deserts. The wilderness. Taking the sins of the people with it's gone. And sin is dealt with and the people are clean and God is making a way for them to know him. And it's not a walking in the garden in the cool of the day kind of friendship, but, but it's having him as their gods. He is at the heart of their community, at the heart of the people, at the heart of their lives. But in Romans 3, where we will be spending our time now, verse 25 is shocking. Because ultimately it says that the sacrifice was ineffective. Verse 23, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That is shocking. Despite the sacrificial system, despite the days of atonement, year after year after year, despite blood and death and lives given and poured out, despite animals slaughtered, finally the sins, their sins were not dealt with. The sacrifices there pointed ahead to a true and better sacrifice, the, the once and for all and forever sacrifice, the, the day of atonement. And you see, as we reach the end of this series, this slightly different topical series, 
and we reach this idea of law-breaking. I suspect if you've been in churches for a while, it's the model of sin that you are most familiar with. This is the one that we're pretty hot on, isn't it? And we, we know there's a, there's a transaction, there's a swap, there's a substitute, and we know the deal, we know how it works. Jesus takes our wrongdoing on himself. He dies instead of us, and there we go, job done. Romans 3, tick. But the reason we're doing it last is because we've seen week on week that sin is profoundly relational. It's not just wrongdoing in a vacuum. It's not just laws broken, lines crossed. The, the cross isn't just a cold transaction. No, we saw our sin is like adultery. It's as if we're willingly turning our backs on the spouse who has given us everything, who, who loves us. It's as if we're jumping into beds with other gods who promise us life, and we, and we buy the lie happily. And so when we get to Romans 3 and we think about sin, bring that relational thinking with it. The lies that we believe, the gods that we chase after, the fickleness of our hearts. You've heard me say it before, but I'll happily say it again. The reason we've done this is to see something of the, the depth and the breadth of our sins so we get the height of the cross. When we take the Lord's Supper shortly, it's my prayer that it will mean so much more to you. Because you'll have seen something of the true reality of sin and so the, the true nature of God's love. And so Romans 3, verse 25, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You see, that the death of the animal can never really deal with the, the sin of people. And so God, in his forbearance and his kindness and his patience, forgave them because he knew Jesus was coming. The little days of atonement are backed up by the big one in the future. But a key word for us to get to grips with is this word, atonement. We've used it already. It trips off the tongue. It's the Bible-type word, but we've not really defined it. What is atonement? Well, the word itself was initially coined by a Yorkshireman. He was a student at Oxford in the 14th century, a man called John Wycliffe. And he was translating the Bible and attempting to put it back into the hands of normal people using normal language. And he found nothing that quite fitted the concept. And so he, he made a word. He constructed a word. Meant simply means to make. So settlement means to make settle. Therefore, atonement is literally to make one at one meant. Two, two parties being brought back together again. Reconciliation happening. Two, two hostile parties becoming friends. And the two parties in question here are, are man and God. What causes hostility between man and God? What stops walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Sin. And so what needs to be dealt with for, for reconciliation to happen? Sin needs to be dealt with. So what is atonement about? It is about dealing with sin. 
Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. When you eat the fruits, you will die. With sin comes death. And so with Jesus' death comes atonement and life. One sacrificial death for all, forever. And atonement is, in lots of ways, at the heart of the cross. But throughout church history, people have had problems with atonement. Questions or issues or doubts. People from within sections of the church and outside as well. I guess we shouldn't be surprised at that because it is such a foundational truth. People often want to get rid of foundations to make buildings collapse. So I want to tackle three questions as we look at these verses. Three questions that perhaps you've, you've wrestled with yourself, maybe things that people have asked you, maybe things that people will ask you. First question is, is it real? That is, is what's going on here simply a fiction or wishful thinking or a fairy story? Does it, is it to do with philosophy? Is it just a nice philosophical idea? Is it tangible? Is it real? Does it actually do something? Or is it just an argument, a, a thought? Well, as Paul writes in Romans 3, he says God's not just doing a bit of creative accountancy. Not just kind of moving things around and lo and behold, it's magically disappeared, the sin has gone and we're all okay again. He, he speaks of the cross as if it happened, as if it was real. He speaks as if the Day of Atonement type image is meant to be in our minds. Christ is presented as a sacrifice of atonement. Our minds are meant to go back to high priests and tabernacles and goats, blood. All the little days of atonement on the treadmill of religion, the annual ritual, all the blood shed pointing ahead to the big one, the one that it was all about. But this time it's not livestock who are dying. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and animals. It's God himself taking on flesh and dying for his people. There's no doubt why he's dying. There's no doubt who he's dying for. Because you see, at the cross God is really angry. Jesus is really punished. God's right anger against sin is really satisfied. And so we are really forgiven. We are justified. Verse 24 and 26. It's the language of being right before God. It's no longer guilty. It's legal righteousness. It's it's innocence, even. Or verse 24 again, it's the language of redemption. Freedom, freedom from slavery, freedom to have true life. The cross is not a legal fiction. You could, you could plot it on a map. You could put it in your diary. At a particular place, at a particular time, Jesus really dies for real people. 
and it really costs. If you're a parent here with young children, you might have heard of Colin Buchanan. He's an Australian kind of singer, songwriter, Christian, kid song type stuff. One of the Christmas CDs that we have in our car most of the year, um, there's a song in it that picks up some of these ideas, the thoughts of Jesus' death being a real thing. Often in our minds it kind of becomes a fairy story or philosophical idea, but he's saying, no, it's real. The first verse goes like this. It, It was a real life. He had real friends. He walked shoulder to shoulder with the lost. He wept real tears for the fallen ones. And he anguished over sin's dreadful cost. On a real cross he cried, Father, forgive as his real life drained away. But then the chorus goes like this. It says, I bet all I have on Jesus. I will throw my life on him. The one who died a real death for real sin. I bet all I have on Jesus. Throughout eternity, I will marvel at the real hope my Saviour won for me. Is it real? Yes. It's not just an idea. It's not just a story. This is real. Second question people ask is, well, is it for everyone? Maybe that's you. Maybe this has been a hard series for you because it's the kind of question that's often asked by people with tender consciences who still feel a sense of the shame, the uncleanness of sin. Something they've been dealing with for years, something that happened or something that happens. An experience, an action, but they feel too bad, too ashamed, too dirty, too unlovable, too far gone. Well, let me read to us from 21 through to 24 again. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The way past, verse 21 should have seen it coming. Law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, pointed to it, testified to it. But as the kids did in 22 to 24, zoom in with me on the alls. We'll start with 23, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. That's been Paul's story so far in Romans. If you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you have God's law or you don't have God's law, You have sinned before him. Look around the world and despite the diversity, wherever you are, despite different languages and locations and temperaments and personalities, skin colours, look down the ages ages, and despite the diversity, whenever you are, we are united by having sinned before God. Whether you're the Queen, or David Beckham, or Taylor Swift, David Cameron, 
William Shakespeare. It's all of us. To fall short of the glory of God means, it means we're made in his image and we're made to reflect him. We're made to show something of his glory. But it's shattered and broken. Ruined. And you know, the thing about the word all in these verses, it's literally, it means all. So verse 22 is such amazing news. Because it's for all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, which, which for the first readers will have been a shocking statement. For large swathes of Israel at the time, who, because they had the law of God, thought themselves to be superior, to hear that it's for all who believe. That's outrageous. But Paul says, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your bloodline, whatever your story, whatever the skeletons in your closets, believe in Christ. Because verse 24, all are freely justified by his grace. You know, it's one of the absolute beauties of being a part of a church like this. That we come from all kinds of different backgrounds. There is a diversity among us. People from a Gentile or a Jewish background. People from different tribes and tongues and nations. Different ages. Different levels of education. But we are all justified freely by his grace. We are here on the same basis. We're united by being broken, all of us, but blessed, loved, justified. So I want to say to everybody in this room, if you're here as a Christian this morning, you are forgiven as you trust Christ. You have been justified. God has given you a righteousness that comes from him. And I don't know where that reaches you. I don't know what that means for you. The sins that you battle with, the feelings of shame, vulnerability, inadequacy, regret, uncleanness. But in Christ, you are justified. You are right before him. You can let it go. Because God has let it go. And that sounds pretty unfair. Doesn't it? We we don't deserve this. Third question. Is it fair? Do you know what the answer is? No. Of course it's not fair. It would be fair if we paid for our sins. Eat of the fruit and you will die. We've all eaten of the fruit. We've all said, no, God, we don't want you in charge. So to be just, to be right, we pay for our own sins. And we want people to pay for what they've done. You should, you should hear children that I know very well wanting their sibling, demanding that their sibling is punished 
when they're naughty. Being outraged if grace is shown. That's not fair. They've done that, you must punish them. Daddy, you can't ignore it. There's something in us that demands justice. That demands wrongs are paid for. But you see, if there was justice for us, then it would be the end. And when we think that it wouldn't be the end, then we've underestimated how good God is. And we've underestimated how bad our sin is. No, it's not fair. It is completely by his grace. It's free, verse 24. And we struggle with grace. Don't we? Maybe not in our minds, but in the way that we live. We're, we're told about grace and we kind of like to sing about grace and we sort of get grace, but works are so much more comfortable, aren't they? You know where you stand with works. With works, you deserve it. With works, you're in charge. With works, God can't ask too much of you because it's about what you've done. But it's grace. It's a gift. We don't deserve it. He gives us everything. Now, there are holes in the illustration, but imagine with me a birthday party. Little girl's birthday. And she, she gets ready, and she gets all her party clothes on, and she's got a pocket full of money, stacked with cash. And as each child arrives with this beautifully wrapped gift for this little girl, out comes some money. She says, how much do I owe for that? Was it in the sale? You got the receipt. How much did you spend on me? Be stupid. It's a gift. It's grace. It's... It's your birthday and I, and I want to celebrate you. Have a gift. Well, so God's gift for us, we, we so easily try and repay, give something back to, to make it worth his while so that we don't feel indebted to him. And his atonement shows us his, his love, his grace. But it also shows us his righteousness too. It's really important in this passage to, to notice the word demonstrate. It's there in 25 and it's there in 26 as well. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. When Paul repeats stuff, he's wanting to make sure we get it. So the question is, how does the cross demonstrate his righteousness? Have five seconds to try and work that out. Because it's a slightly funny concept, isn't it? It demonstrates his love. We get that. We see something tangible, solid, trustworthy. I know God loves me. He's demonstrated it at the cross. But how does it demonstrate his righteousness? Well, I take it because he doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't just pretend it's not there and try and sweep it under the carpet or push it under the bed. No, no, Christian, God was very angry with your sin. His wrath was poured out on your sin, on his son. 
we see righteousness demonstrated because sin is punished. God chose to work this way so he could maintain his own righteousness, the the reality of his character, what he was like, his goodness is seen. Because sin is punished. He is both just, verse 26, because sin is not ignored, and he is the one who makes people justified. It is God who justifies the unrighteous. It's not the guilty who pay, but it is the righteous one who pays for us. Now sometimes that idea is caricatured. We need to keep a hold of the Trinity as we think about this. God, the mean, angry father, beating up his willing son, is, his unwilling son, sorry, is the picture sometimes given, which makes him out to be a monster. But if you remember the Trinity, if you realise it's always been the plan, it's God lovingly dealing with his own justice and you see how amazing this passage is. And finally, how do we receive this gift? Maybe that's something for you to think of today for the first time. How well Paul labours it again. Verse 22 and 25 and 26. It's given through faith in Christ. It's to be just to be received by faith. Verse 26, he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And faith is simply saying we need to believe him. You are today being offered this free gift from God. And faith takes it and accepts it. You don't have to and you can't ever earn. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to pay. There's nothing to earn. There are no hoops to jump through. There are no clubs to join. There's no nothing. We, we just need to accept the offer. That's what it is to have faith. He offers us Christ and we take him. We'll know him now and we'll know him forever. Listen with me to how this, the story ends. Listen to just a bit from the penultimate chapter of the Bible. It's as real as a man dying and rising again and dealing with sins. And it's even better than walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his God and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who deals with our sin. Thank you that he took your anger against our sin upon himself. Thank you that he graciously, freely and generously poured out his blood for us. Thank you that he is the lamb who atones and makes his people righteous. Father, we say that we throw ourselves on him. 
the one who died a real death for real sin. Thank you for him. Amen.